Welcome to Tool Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss Christian practices and creative resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. I'm really blessed to be in Midwestern Seminary Spurgeon Library today with Dr. Christian George. Christian, how are you today? Well, and yourself, Travis? I am doing very well. Thank you for your hospitality here, letting us record uh, in this wonderful, wonderful uh, area. It's just a good place to study and think. I appreciate that. For our listeners, Dr. Christian George is the curator of the Spurgeon Library and associate professor of historical theology here at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We are here today to talk about a host of things, and uh, if anyone hasn't guessed yet, it's going to center around and definitely include Charles Spurgeon. Whence began your fascination, Christian, with Charles Haddon Spurgeon? You know, I don't believe in accidents, Travis. I took a pair of scissors and cut that word out of my dictionary. So if you turn to the A section of my dictionary, you can put your finger all the way through the page— because I believe in providence, not accidents. Now, on the back of the word accident was another casualty, uh, academic. <laughs> so that disappeared as well. But I don't believe, you know, the Spurgeon Library, I don't believe the Spurgeon Project, any of this is by accident. This is by providence. When I was a teenager, my father took me to England. And it was really on that trip that I developed uh, a love a love affair with Charles Spurgeon. Here's a man that God used in a mighty way, a preacher of the gospel, best of all and most of all, a preacher. Uh, He once said, I don't think I've ever preached the gospel a single time without God converting souls. So he was a preacher, and I started reading his sermons and just fell in love with what he had to say. And more than that, I fell in love with the Christ about whom he talked. Amen. That's good to hear. You know, it's it's easy to fixate on a figure instead of hearing their message. And if their message is uh, an apt message, it's Christ, right? Mm. And so that's certainly true for Spurgeon. So I've got on the table before me a, a really beautiful book. It is the second volume of the Lost Sermons of Charles Spurgeon. Tell me, how did that project come to be? And, and while we're at it, how did the Spurgeon Library here at Midwestern come to be? Yeah, so I did my PhD in Scotland. My last year there, 2011, I believe it was, I came across these lost sermons of Charles Spurgeon at Spurgeon's College. You know, Spurgeon tried in 1857 to publish his earliest sermons, the ones that he preached in Cambridge, in Cambridgeshire, and he was unsuccessful. And so I felt the Lord leading me to uh, fulfill the task that he himself had had failed to do, mm. and it's been an up and down journey. It's been a roller coaster. Uh, we've had difficulties and struggles and potholes along the way, and yet God has been good in allowing us to steward this this early Spurgeon and this story of God's grace. Uh, Spurgeon, we think now, was worth about the equivalent of a hundred million dollars in today's society, and yet he died poor, with only two thousand pounds in his bank. And the reason he died poor is because he gave all his money away. He started 66 uh, charities and, and extensions of his tabernacle. And so after he died in 1892, his wife had to sell the library, and the only people in the world who wanted the Spurgeon Library were Missouri Baptists. <laughs> and so the library ended up coming here for a century. And then in 2006, Midwestern purchased it in a blind auction. And so we just consider ourselves stewards of this story. You know, this, Travis, used to be our old chapel and on the front door, it's glass. We frosted Spurgeon's face in, in, into the glass. And the reason we do that is because we don't just look to Spurgeon. We look through Spurgeon to Jesus Christ. And that's our heartbeat here. That's the heartbeat of this project. That's the heartbeat of this library. That's the heartbeat of the seminary. Uh, we don't want to worship Spurgeon on the one hand. Uh, but nor do we want to forget Spurgeon because that is equally as dangerous. Uh, 
Hmm. We forget the past. We repeat its errors. And Spurgeon still speaks like Abel in Hebrews. Uh, We still believe he has something to say. And that's a good word for uh, exegetes listening to this, biblical studies guys listening to hear. Uh, we, we applaud the, the work of historical theologians, although sometimes from a distance. I think it's good to be reminded that we need to hear, we benefit from hearing, we profit from hearing how others have both interpreted the Scripture and exposited the Scripture. And that's, that's the meat of what we want to talk about here today. And this is a question that, as we discussed it, uh, you've indicated, Christian, that you hear a lot. Was Charles Spurgeon an expositor? Did he do expository preaching? <laughs> oh, it's a good question, Travis. I get that question probably twice a day. Um, <laughs> yes and no. Uh, yes and no. Not, not in the sense that he preached sequentially. Uh, Charles Spurgeon had a very high pneumatology. He believed the Holy Spirit would give him a, give him a fresh text every single week. And so, no, not in the sense that, uh, say, a John MacArthur or someone like that would be an expositor. Uh, and yet also, I would say, yes, Charles Spurgeon exposed. That's what that word means, to exposit, to expose uh, not just the meaning of the text on the authorial intention, uh, but to expose it uh, applicationally. And I think there's a lesson there for, for us I mean, Charles Spurgeon certainly was capable of expositing Scripture the way we would interpret that word today in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. He was working for 20 years on a verse-by-verse commentary on the Psalms called The Treasury of David, which he completed. Uh, And so you've often heard that that phrase misattributed to Spurgeon. I take my text and make a beeline to the the cross. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, he he actually never said that. We've had to myth-bust that. Over Rowan Hedge was not Spurgeon? (laughs) Well, the beeline to the cross, certainly not. The over Rowan Rowan Hedge was actually uh, a Welch minister that he was quoting, so not, not even that one either. Uh, and the yet, English. well, you know, we were looking through our our, uh, our library here, and we found a book on bees, beekeeping. Apparently, bees do not make a straight line; they fly zigzag. And in many ways, that's a better way to interpret Spurgeon's homiletic. Uh, he zigzagged his way, as the Puritans did, and in many cases, as the Reformers did, mm-hmm. from his text to the cross. Uh, And so I think there's a lot we can learn from Spurgeon, but you have to also say this. Charles Spurgeon was not interested in preaching the perfect sermon. That was not his aim. Uh, He was not an academic. Uh, He he once said, you know, Jesus told Peter not to feed his giraffes, but to feed his sheep. And so Charles Spurgeon preached in such a way uh, as as to save souls and edify the believers and that often took a very unexpected twist and turn over the course of his week. Man, that's a, that's a lot to think about. And, and I think it exposes an issue that when we talk about expository preaching, that we really mean one of three things at least. Lexio continua, you know, you mentioned John MacArthur is going to preach sequentially through a book of Scripture, and there's a lot to be gained from that, and we learn a lot from that. Um, that there is Another thing, you know, what, however it fits within your series week to week, that that week what you're doing is you're explaining the exegesis of the passage in such a way as to apply it to your hearers uh, in a very um, interpretive manner, very uh, hermeneutical manner with your homiletics. But then there's something that uh, others have even more recently advocated, kind of preaching with the voice hmm. of the text, preaching the truth of the text, um, 
and I don't know if this is a, a bad analogy or not, but I think it's there's maybe a difference of explaining what this text is doing and letting the text do what it does. And that's not to pit the two against one another. I would probably fall a little further away from Spurgeon's uh, model in my own preaching when I get the uh, opportunity. And so I think that covers something important and also highlights something that uh, you and I both heard in a chapel sermon today, to not uh, put the ban on our other brothers and sisters uh, who might practice uh, just a little bit differently than we do, especially those with whom we have so much in common. Well, that's right. And you look in all throughout the scriptures, you know, Peter and Paul preached very differently. Mm-hmm. You know, someone once asked me, could Spurgeon pass a, a preaching class at your seminary? And, uh, you know, at, at any seminary I've ever been to, I've wondered the same thing. Could Jesus pass my MDiv preaching class, the way he preached in parables and the Sermon on the Mount? and mm-hmm. I do think it raises a, a good question, you know, should preaching be the same? Right. Should we, uh, should we elevate personalities and mimic them? Spurgeon told his students in his book, Lectures to My Students, don't imitate me. And in many ways, he was smart to say that because you can't really imitate Charles Spurgeon. He had a photographic memory. Uh, he, uh, he memorized uh, everything he ever saw. He played a game with his students, Travis, where, you know, you can look out this window and see our beautiful library here. He would have students, 10 to 12 of them, line up and just pick any book off any shelf and start reading. And by the time they got to the second sentence, I mean, he would finish the rest of the page from memory. And we're talking about, you know, not just Shakespeare. We're talking about Hebrew lexicons. Hmm. And so he had an idyllic memory. And so his whole life was sermon prep, which probably explains why he spent about 15 minutes on Saturday night preparing for a Sunday morning message. Now, unless you're like that— uh, it's difficult to mimic uh, the Prince of Preachers. And that's good to hear. I think it's especially important for a big chunk of our audience who are um, either, like me, students, seminarians, whether they're doctoral students, whether they're grad students, even undergrad students, who hope to be academically informed preachers, expositors, uh, those who are currently in the pastorate who want to keep one foot in the biblical studies world, and that's kind of why they use resources like this podcast, like our website. Uh, there are others who are strictly academic, who are purely scholars, but they're believers. They, they're confessing scholars and academics. And I think it's good to remember, even just kind of circling back to what you talked about, um, none of us likely are going to have the net worth that Charles Spurgeon had, even accounting for inflation, right? And yet any of us could die poor. Mm-hmm. That's, that part's not hard to do. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, those who are struggling to find outlets beyond the Sunday morning pulpit, I mean, these lost sermons even not being published for 150 years. If Charles Spurgeon is having a hard time getting a publisher, I hope that's at least a little bit of a balm, a little bit of an encouragement to, to many of those who are listening, um, which brings us back just a little bit more. Why should anyone pick up this book, whether the first volume or now the second volume of The Lost Sermons of Charles Spurgeon? What are they going to find there? They're going to find Spurgeon's very first sermons before he goes to London in 1854 and goes viral. Uh, he's just a country pastor in the middle of the, of the woods. Uh, he's in a little church called Water Beach. It had 30 members when he joined. And he's preaching the gospel faithfully. And Travis, isn't that a word for us? We don't mm. need any more famous preachers. We need more faithful preachers, Amen. preachers who are exegeting scriptures biblically and faithfully as best as they can. And that's one reason I think pastors of all kinds, are they're gravitating to this project. Here is a nobody preaching the gospel. That's not the Spurgeon we usually think of. And yet, 
um, these early sermons are some of his very best sermons. Uh, he's preaching all of the scripture. Um, in, the, in volume one, about half of his texts that year are from the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And he's 16 years old. Uh, and also, it's important to say the Victorians knew their Bibles a lot better than we do. Charles never really spent a lot of time unpacking kind of the, the remote text because the Victorians knew it by, by heart. They didn't need uh, a recount of, the, of Mephibosheth. They knew it off the cuff. And so I think there are some differences, particularly when we start comparing Spurgeon to our own day and age. In one sense, it's historically um, – I think it's historically irresponsible to compare Spurgeon to our to our own time. In the same way it would be to compare one of us to someone who lived 150 years from now. The culture shifts, the church, the emphases shift. And yet I do think there are principles from these law sermons that we can that we can learn. Uh, particularly when it comes to earnestness and passion. You read these sermons and he's so dependent upon the Holy Spirit. In volume 1 he says these are skeletons and only skeletons without the Holy Ghost. Hmm. And so he had a very high pneumatology, and he depended on the Holy Spirit for every word that came out of his mouth. And that church of 30 grew to almost 500 in two and a half years. And so it's remarkable to see how God's hand was on him, and uh, it's, it's also been remarkable to see how God's hand has been on this project. Now tell me a little bit about this project. We're in Volume 2. Uh, the word on the street is that we're going to volume 12. Unless Jesus comes Unless back. Unless Jesus comes back. Yes, that's right. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus quickly, right? And, and so there's obviously a lot to work with. The guy preached a lot of sermons. It was what he did. It was the bulk of his ministry, if, if that. If yeah, he preached accurate. 12 times a week, a different sermon every time. My goodness. Often. Yeah, I mean, even so, uh, this is not going to air on Reformation Day, but today is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And you hear about all of the the in-depth pastoral and preaching and teaching ministry that John Calvin, for instance, did in Geneva. I mean, he's he's this theological giant, often called the theologian of the Reformation, and yet the vast majority of his waking hours were pastoral. Hmm. I mean, we have the same thing in Charles Spurgeon, not known as a, a writer of systematic theologies, but one of these homiletical giants, and he is doing it. He's preaching. Yeah, and Spurgeon preached in Calvin's pulpit uh, in Geneva, and they handed him a black clerical robe to wear, and he says, I'm not going to wear this robe. And then they <laughs> told him it belonged to John Calvin himself, and he quickly put it on his five foot four, 300-pound frame. And in many ways, that's what we're doing. You know, mm. We should never be ashamed to shimmy ourselves into Reformation thread. And you can draw a line from Charles Spurgeon's exegesis all the way back through the Puritans, through Bunyan, all the way back through Charles Simeon, who was really one of his greatest early examples, uh, particularly in Cambridge, all the way back to Jean-Claude in France, the French Calvinists, all the way back to Calvin. Mm-hmm. I mean, Spurgeon didn't invent the wheel of preaching. He just spun it in a direction that uh, was new for his day. And particularly when it comes to the way he gets inside and outside a text, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways that the Puritans preach from Edwards, which is very propositional. Uh, Spurgeon was very Bunyan-esque. He's very picturesque, and uh, he's not afraid to use allegory or metaphor, and neither was Calvin in, in, in many ways, and neither was Luther. And so I think it's best to see Spurgeon's preaching, his exegesis, his expository tendencies in in continuity with the Reformation. And if we can maybe even invert this concept just a little bit, you know, we're talking about biblical studies and exegesis and and maybe giving Charles Spurgeon a bit of a break 
uh, in the way he's preaching for a variety of reasons. But on the other hand, being reminded that not every author of Scripture has the exact same intention in mind either or the exact same audience in mind either. Let's exegete Spurgeon as Spurgeon, just like we want to give the Song of Solomon, like we want to give the Pauline letters, like we want to give John's Apocalypse, all their own weight, all their own chance to have their own voice. I think that's an important thing to remember. So if I can just uh, put that plug in a little bit uh, to to have a little mercy and to learn from Hmm. this man who obviously Harold did gospel with everything that he had. And, and I think it's good and right being the last day of what's become, I don't know how, how long for, but Pastor Appreciation Month. Um, my, my, my pastor here in Kansas City, uh, professor here at Midwestern, Dr. Todd Shipman, biblical studies giant, just unsung hero of uh, my educational experience thus far, uh, knows the word and yet refuses to mention a single Greek concept in a sermon right. because he is a pastor and he's shepherding people. He's feeding the sheep and, and not the giraffes. And so this is a, a good example, I think, of holding these things in tension. You talk about uh, Charles Spurgeon and his, his photographic memory in the Hebrew lexicon. It's clearly not an unlearned man. Right. He's clearly a man who understood how to expound the scriptures and how to exposit them and realize that those two are not the same thing. Hmm. And so if maybe I can get a, just a word of very gentle rebuke to myself and others – that what we do in exegesis is not exactly the same as what we do in exposition, though they can't be separated from one another. No, that's exactly right. I mean, when we preach, are we preaching to impress people with our Greek and our Hebrew? Spurgeon taught himself both of those. Mm. Uh, before he hit puberty, Spurgeon was dreaming in Hebrew. Uh, and yet he never received a formal theological degree. He was not a student at Cambridge because he was a nonconformist. Um, And so his job, as he saw it as a preacher, is to lead and to feed. And so he shied away, as Simeon did, as as Luther did. He shied away from making it too academic. You know, it's all about incarnatio. You're going to put flesh on faith. You're going to bring the word, uh, in John 1.14, you're going to bring the word down to the people. And that's the reality in which Spurgeon preached. And I think it's also important to say that his, speaking of contextualizing Spurgeon, it's important to say that it was through a very unlearned man that Charles Spurgeon became a Christian. He stumbles into a church in Colchester, an Arminian church, a Methodist church, and, uh, and this shoemaker, this tailor, this nobody, this anonymous person he never met again, climbs into the pulpit and starts preaching a sermon on Isaiah forty-five twenty-two: Look unto me and be ye saved. Uh, it was not a great oratorical exercise. There was no eloquence there, and yet... God used the simplicity and the plainness of that preached word, often repeated over and over and over again because Spurgeon said he didn't have anything else to say, to convert somebody like Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And if you convert someone like Charles Haddon Spurgeon or if God uses you to do that, um, 10 million Victorians will hear the gospel by the end of the century. And so God can use the weak things, even weak uh, expositors and exegetes, though we strive to be bitter. Uh, He can use the broken things and the weak things Um, to accomplish his will in this world. Spurgeon once said, you know, if you're a ram's horn of a preacher, keep preaching. God will blow through you. But if you can be a silver trumpet, choose that instead. (laughs) And so I think that should be our aim when it comes to handling God's word. Amen. That's good to hear. And now this is something I haven't yet done on this podcast, but I want to encourage our listeners to check this out also on our website. We, we always post uh, additional resources, links, things to, to be uh, looking at from 
our actual exegeticaltools.com webpage. And I want to encourage you because uh, we have some cool uh, resources. We have some awesome connections with this work and some other works from B&H Academics. So we're really grateful to them for that. And I'm excited. And above all, I'm thankful to you, Christian. Thank you for this conversation. It's been great. Thank you so much, Travis. So something I do uh, in our little tagline is I have uh, two different superlatives, and uh, I just swap them out every week for a new one. And I believe we are on C. C. So um, uh, welcome to Tool Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss blank practices and blank resources. And I figured, being a creative guy, you might want to chime in. What kind of practices are these? Christian practices. Christian practices. I'm going to assume that that was not a self-serving remark. Oh, no. Uh, Christian practices and what kind of resources? It ought ought to be a hard C, then, if we're going to go for that alliteration. Mm. Um, Creative. Ooh. Both good. Both good. See, I knew there was a reason why there are no accidents. This is why I, I forgot to do it. All right, we'll get rolling.